Well, praise the Lord. We do sing hallelujah. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be today, of course. We are preaching Peter's first sermon. There are 19 sermons in the book of Acts, and this is the very first one. And although you don't have all of Peter's sermon given to you, you have the major highlights, the major points of emphasis in Peter's sermon. Just think, he preached it in one setting, and this is now my third sermon out of Peter's first sermon, right? So we are talking about the exalted Christ. It's good for us to be reminded that during the first and second centuries, citizens of Rome were required to take a loyalty oath and say publicly, Caesar ha curios, which means Caesar is Lord. The Christian community, however, would not say this. They were willing, as civil servants of Rome, to offer their loyalty and honor and obedience when they could to the king or to the emperor. But even if it cost them their lives, they refused to say, Caesar, ha, curios. Instead, their confession was, Asus, ha, curios. Jesus is Lord. And they would not say that Caesar is Lord. This is where Peter is headed in his first sermon. Pentecost finds its purpose and fulfillment in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. This, the reason, this was the reason for it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It was not for a Pentecostal camp meeting. It was not for phenomenological events. They missed the point, or people miss the point today when they think that Pentecost is about just wind and fire and, and uh, foreign languages. It's about the fact that all of the promises of the Old Testament have found their completion and fulfillment in the person and work of the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both Christ and King. So this is where Peter is headed. Remember, we learned last week that death did not hold the power to keep Jesus in the grave. We learned that in verse 24. Let's pick up the reading there and let's read through the text because Peter, his affirmation that Jesus came forth from the grave was not enough in his opinion. They were witnesses of it. Remember the infallible 40 days where they saw Jesus? He met with over 500 after his resurrection. Well, Peter not only affirms that, but Peter is going to give them the basis from the Old Testament in how that has taken place. And the fact that since the Jewish audience was steeped in the Old Testament, he's going to take their Old Testament scriptures to show them how that Jesus is the fulfillment. Don't take that lightly. You need to understand something. Someone caught me in the hallway one day and said, you love the Old Testament, don't you? And I said, well, yes, I love the whole Bible. The Old Testament, you got to understand, has the new in it concealed. So, in the old, you have the new concealed. And in the new, you have the Old Testament revealed. Always remember that. And so you really can't translate one without the other. So what does Peter do? He doesn't just make the affirmation that God raised him up from the grave. 
he jumps right over to Psalm 16 to prove it. Now listen to the text, beginning in verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. We learned that grammatically, structurally, it has its origin again in the Old Testament. And is speaking of a woman hold or having or awaiting childbirth. So you ladies could no longer hold your baby back from being born uh, than the grave could hold Jesus back from being resurrected. Hallelujah. We learned that last week. So God raised him up, loosing from the birth pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death had an impossible task of holding the sinless Lamb of God at bay, which he could not. Now, verse 25. For David says concerning him, note, note the urgency. Now, he could have just quoted, you, cannot, you would not leave my soul in Hades, or that he would... Uh, His uh, body would not see corruption. But he doesn't do that. He gives you the entire Psalm 16, the gist of it. Why? Because he wants you to know that in that Psalm, David was talking about Jesus. Do you notice the pronouns? This is a thousand years before Peter is preaching this sermon. And he says, David says concerning him. Who's the him? Jesus, right? I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Those two phrases would be enough to prove the resurrection. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or my body or let your Holy One see corruption. Meaning your body would not decay. That was enough. But he starts in 25. Why? Because he wants you to hear Psalm 16 And what David is saying is all about Jesus. In verse 28, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make full, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And now Peter's going to explain what David foresaw. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, meaning Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord. This is Psalm 110. So you've got Psalm 116. And now he's referencing Psalm 110 as the exaltation part. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the conclusion of the sermon Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And verse 37 is the response of those who heard the sermon. So, there are nine verses about the resurrection in Peter's sermon. Beginning early in the 20-something verses and going all the way down. So, there's no way I could have taught on the resurrection with one point last week, right? If you remember, we talked about he was publicly endorsed by the Father, attested by the Father. He was crucified, and then he resurrected. We're still on the resurrection theme. So two divisions I want you to see out of the sermon today. 
lifted directly, exposited directly from the text of Scripture, is that, again, Jesus resurrected from the grave, right? And secondly, Jesus is exalted. He's going to use Psalm 16 to teach us the resurrection, and he's going to teach Psalm 110 to us to teach us of the exaltation or the enthronement of the Son of God, which is very, very important. So, Jesus resurrected from the dead. And here's what he said. David foresaw it. We read that. Peter's going to quote a lengthier section of the psalm so that we understand clearly that he is talking about Jesus. That's the focal point. Remember, Peter's an unlearned fisherman. Remember when they were speaking in languages that the people said, whoo, they're speaking in our language. And they called them Galileans. They called them hillbillies. You know, they're up there in their overalls and camouflage, right? They're not, they're not Jerusalemites. And they're up there preaching and teaching. And remember, Peter's just an unlearned fisherman, yet he's given divine utterance by the Holy Spirit of God. And he is going to tie the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an Old Testament text. Again, who is his audience? They're Jews. Who was the greatest king that ever lived? To a Jew. David, right? So he's, he's, he's teaching them the gospel where they are in their particular setting. So in verse 25, Peter begins by saying, David said of him. So the affirmation is that here is King David meditating on the king of kings. 1,000 years before Jesus of Nazareth is ever known to people who are walking the streets as Jews, here was David meditating on the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 26, we move to David's gladness because of his joy and his hope. And in verse 27, here's the ground of his hope. David's joy and hope ends up being connected with the promise that God had made to him. And the cause of David's joy is that his soul would not be abandoned to Sheol or the grave. The idea here is definitely grave. And he's speaking of his body being abandoned. Now, he's exuberant about this fact uh, that his body would not remain in the ground. Now, folks, they knew what happened when the body was placed in the ground. Right? The worms came and ate it, and the body decayed. And Peter was masterful here in the preaching of the Word and tying it together through the utterance of the Holy Spirit of God because we think David is talking about his own soul, but David foresaw that God made a promise to him and to his seed which is Christ, and David formed a solidarity with his descendant, and the promise fulfilled through David's descendant ultimately would be the promise that would be fulfilled in David's very own life. Because David's bones are still in the grave, folks. You can check it out to this day. As a matter of fact, when Peter explains it in a few minutes, you're going to see that. But one of these days, God's going to resurrect even the body of David. Right? And so there's this solidarity that he's speaking of. A little later, Peter would write in his epistle, and please take this text and put it, in the, put it as a sticky note in the thinking part of your brain. Y'all got one of those? Right? Just take it and stick it in there. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. What an awesome text. Now, if you're tracking with me, listen close. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Y'all got a Bible? I hear no pages turning. Now, Acts is not 1 Peter, all right? You got to go right a little ways before you find it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. 
concerning this salvation. Listen. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time, listen, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. Y'all note that? That the Spirit of Christ was in them indicating and predicting the sufferings of Jesus. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have been now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look into. So when you read Psalm 16, you quickly realize that David is speaking through the Spirit of Christ. A thousand years before the man Christ, the Son of Man, the God-Man was born in Bethlehem. A thousand years before that time frame here is David with the Spirit of Christ preaching through him that he will not allow his soul to be abandoned to the grave. In verse 29, we get to the next section of Peter's sermon. So the first thing he does is to say David foresaw this. That a descendant of David, not David himself, a descendant, his body would not be left to decay. How long was Jesus in the grave, folks? Are y'all getting this? And he's talking about a descendant, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, and his body would not see corruption. He's speaking of a descendant, but the descendant is not Solomon of David. It is the greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Peter's going to give explanation. I won't read it again. Beginning in verse 29, David foresaw it. Now Peter's going to explain it. Folks, that's how you preach the Bible. You explain what's in the text, right? Uh, We may say Peter is preaching expositionally. He's taking the Word of God, which is the only thing that can change a life. Right? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word. So Peter is letting them know that Psalm 16 is not ultimately about David, but about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus. You know this because David died, and David was buried, and his bones are still in the tomb, and you can go visit it today and put some flowers there. This is kind of what Peter's saying in his sermon. It would almost be... Like us saying today that to a Muslim, Muhammad is dead. Muhammad is dead and buried and his bones are still in the grave. Or to a Buddhist, you would say to them, Buddha died and he stayed dead and his bones are in the grave. Or you could say, well, to Confucians, Confucius died and he is still dead. Since we confidently know this, right, because David says it. Peter says it, brothers, I may say to you that David died and he was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Uh, In brackets, parenthetical reference, go put some flowers there. Right? His body's there, but it's not true of the king. It's not true of Jesus. Remember, as he's preaching, tracking through the sermons, all they had to do was produce a body. And Christianity would have folded like a house of cards. They couldn't produce the body because he was not there. The grave could not hold him. So David was a prophet. And he knew that God had made this promise. And David looked ahead with the Spirit of Christ in him to his future resurrection. His body was not abandoned, nor did it suffer decay. And he says, here it is, fellas. It's proof that the Messiah was going to be raised from the dead. And I'm proving it to you through your Old Testament scriptures. Masterful. 
David was a prophet. Did you know that? I mean, we know he was a king. He was a little shepherd boy before that. But he was also a prophet. David said this in 2 Samuel 23. You put your spirit within me and your words were on my tongue. Now, two things confront us in Peter's explanation. One of David's descendants, right? It says it in the text that one of his descendants. So, we have to deal with the obedience of one of David's sons if he's going to be on the throne. And then there's the other component of this, which is an everlasting thing. Well, that's huge, isn't it? A descendant's going to be on his throne, but there's going to be no end to that reign. What do you know about Solomon? What do you know about Solomon? Well, folks, he was a covenant infidel. He wasn't faithful, was he? Was Peter, was Peter speaking of a descendant, which would have been Solomon? Of course not, he wasn't speaking. He's speaking of one who's going to have absolute perfect obedience. And only one had perfect obedience. And that's the Son of God. So the passage, clearly, he is prophesying, David was through the Spirit of Christ. And the prediction, again, was made a thousand years before this time, before anybody heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Remember back at the beginning of the sermon? Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And so, God raised him up, and we are witnesses of this. So, again, let's track these major, there's a major theme and a minor theme. The real broad theme is that everything happening at Pentecost was to signal that the Messiah has come. He's the Christ, the King. The narrow theme is that this King is God. Right? The narrow theme is that He is Yahweh God. And that's what's going to be proved in Psalm 110. But they saw him alive. He lives, doesn't he? Christ Jesus lives today. And they witnessed this. And the authentication of the Messiahship of Christ was the fact that the Holy Spirit, whom the Father had given to the Son, has now been poured out by the Son upon the church of the living God. So this Jesus, along with the Father, poured out his Spirit on that day. Praise God for the resurrected Lamb. Praise the Lord for the resurrection. First, first uh, Corinthians 15 again. If Christ be not raised, we are men most miserable. Uh, we of all people are to be pitied if Jesus is still in the grave. But He's not because He's risen. He is resurrected from the grave. Here's the second point. Jesus is exalted now, the resurrection led to his ascension, Acts 1, which leads to his exaltation, we can't stop there, which leads to his enthronement of where he is today. Listen, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, right hand enthronement, until I make your enemies a footstool. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, sit here at my right hand. So, there are two periods we think about in the life of Christ. There's the humiliation stage, which was His incarnation and crucifixion, right? That's considered in Philippians 2 as His humiliation. He humbled Himself, came as a servant, right? Did not consider it robbery to be equal with the Father, but made Himself of no reputation. Folks, that's humility, Taking on your flesh and mine is humility. God putting on skin is humility. 
But it led to the crucifixion. We call that the first part. That's his humiliation. But there's a second part that theologians speak of. And it is his exaltation. Where did that begin? When he came up from the grave. But where did it end? Not just at the ascension. But his enthronement on high. That's where the exaltation ends. So this is a place of power. And rule. And authority. And honor. And privilege. And what Peter is doing is called confrontational preaching. I do some of that around here, don't I? You you preach the word, and some pastors are called to comfort the afflicted, and some are called to afflict the comfortable, right? But if you're a preacher and the text is there, you preach what's there, right? Uh, You don't just hiccup over them. You preach what the word says. And here is Peter with confrontational, revolutionary preaching. And he says to them, the one you crucified, Folks, let this sink into your mind and heart. The very one that you crucified is enthroned in heaven. Man, to say that to the Jewish people, the one you crucified has been given the highest place, enthroned above. And if you read this carefully enough, you saw where, again, Christ received that promise of the Spirit, and He turns around And gives it to his church. And the Jewish people knew full well that the Messiah was the quintessential man of the Spirit. They knew this. Remember Isaiah 61? Don't turn. Listen. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Y'all remember this? Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Where does Jesus pick this up and read the scroll of Isaiah? Y'all listening? He reads it in the temple. He picks it up and he has the scroll of Isaiah 61 and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. They, they gnash their teeth at him after he reads this and wanna, they want to put him to death. And so they knew the one that they were waiting on was the one who was the quintessential man of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me, it says in Isaiah 61. He came... Into this world by virginal conception. How? By the power and the overshadowing, the brooding. The same brooding that took place when God created the world through the Spirit. This brooding over Mary's womb. Bang! Conception is given. Woke you up, didn't I? Amen? Think about that. Just think about the glory of God being able just to speak the Word through the Holy Spirit. And there is conception in Mary's womb. We saw the Holy Spirit not only with virginal conception, but descending upon Him at His baptism like a dove. What Jesus did in His ministry, the Bible says, was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says He was given the Spirit of God without measure. And in this passage, the focus is on the exalted Messiah who is now giving the Spirit of God as a gift to the church. Jesus. He's the life-giving One, the one who has at the right hand of the Father, enthroned on high, is the one responsible for everything you see. That's how Peter is explaining this. So just as Psalm 16 was proof of the resurrection, Psalm 110 is proof of the exaltation. He is the exalted, enthroned God that we serve. It's Jesus Christ, the Lord. He's enthroned. In other words, folks... We're not waiting on Him to rule. He already reigns. 
He already rules. One of the worst theological things that can ever be taught is that somehow or another we're kind of looking all toward the future when Jesus one day will rule. And right now everything's just messed up, folks. That's not true. He reigns and He rules. He's enthroned on high today. The King of glory. That's what this is about. So they preached the preaching. And look, Sunday school teachers and preachers alike, we fall short when we don't preach the enthroned Christ. He not only was crucified and resurrected and ascended into heaven, he is enthroned on high. And we need to speak of this and preach this. He's the king now. He is ruling now. And the whole apostolic message was resurrection, exaltation, and enthronement. And at the heart of the text is an affirmation of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now everybody listen. You may not have been tracking with me, but you need to listen on this point. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. And I get terrified when I hear some of the Christian jargon that goes on around churches sometimes when we say things like, you need to invite Jesus into your heart so that He will be the Lord of your life. I want to ask you something. Where, who was He before you invited Him? Whether you ever invite Him into your life or not is not the situation at hand. Now, you need to, and you better. But what's really important for you when you bow before Him, prostrate before the Lord of glory, is that He's God no matter if you ever receive Him or not. You're not going to change the fact that He's the enthroned Lord. So often we dumb it down so much, folks, that we've got this religious jargon and we've got, we've got all these sayings that have no biblical content. No truth to them whatsoever. The message of Jesus is far more radical than you just saying, well, just invite him into your life and make him Lord of your life. You're dealing with the one who created heaven and earth. You're dealing with the one who created heaven and earth. It was Christ the Lord who made the universe. He rules. He doesn't wait for us to invite him in. He rules us whether or not we want him to rule us. He rules us. You can be hostile to his reign. And you can flee from the presence of the king. You can fight against his authority, but he's still Lord. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, when you read that, you've arrived at the crucial point of the day of Pentecost. That's it. That's what everything was about starting in Acts chapter 2 verse 1. To get to this point, that we should know for certain that He is both Lord and Christ. The text literally, literally reads in the Greek, both Lord and Christ, God has appointed Him. Now, this is interesting. Because 53 days prior to this, the people He's preaching to had Him crucified. Now, think about this. 53 days before this, the very people He was preaching to were the ones, or many of them, were the ones who had Him crucified. So Peter is moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, and here's this audience in front of him, and he's declaring that God has made him both Lord and Christ. So when Peter uses that term Lord or Kyrios, uh, it's rather unambiguous, isn't it? It is very ultra clear that he's proclaiming that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the King. And so those standing there that day would have referred to Yahweh of the Old Covenant as Lord. So get what he's going. Look where he's headed. In Psalm 110, he's going to say that Jesus of Nazareth 
is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Folks, track with me. He's saying that Jesus Christ is God. As a matter of fact, there's no chance of heaven if he wasn't God for us. Because the Son of God, in perfect harmony with the Father and the Spirit, left the confines of heaven to come down to this world on a rescue mission to save sinners like us. And if he wasn't the God-man, we don't have a half a hallelujah chance of heaven. John 1 says that it was the eternal Logos that made the worlds. And that's the Son of God who came down to take on human flesh. So Peter has the audacity to say that God has appointed Jesus as Lord, the King, the Christ, the Anointed One, all this language He's fulfilled the promises of God given in the Old Testament. He's accomplished it and sealed our redemption. So His resurrection and ascension and enthronement serve as a public declaration from God Almighty that Jesus is God. He's been given a name that is above every name. You ever read that in Philippians? He's been given a name above every name. He puts it in the place. He puts them in the place. Where they themselves had crucified the Lord of glory 53 days before that. But now he's telling them that the one you crucified is the king. And you better give him allegiance. Or you will die in your sins. That's pretty upfront preaching, isn't it? Pretty confrontational. And he reminds them once again of their culpability. Listen. Both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, we learned earlier, back up in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan of God and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified. So who killed the Son? The Father did. He delivered Him up according to His definite plan. Who killed Him? Well, the Romans actually nailed Him to the tree. Who killed Him? Well, the Jews turned Him over. Who killed Him? You and me. Right? He was delivered up for our sins. He became the propitiation for our sins. So he lets them know their culpability. And here's, here's Peter. Get this. The one who buckled under the weight of a little small servant girl. Who said, aren't you one of them hillbillies? Don't, you got an accent. Don't you? What? You were traveling with those disciples, right? And Peter denies him. And here under the power of the Holy Spirit of God. He has this amazing conversational, in-your-face approach. And he says, you crucified the Lord of glory. Now listen, look, look. You killed the King of kings, the King of the nations. You've done away with the long-awaited Messiah that your King, David, told you was on the way. You have crucified and nailed to the tree your covenant-keeping God. Yahweh God, who has but one name, and His name is Yahweh. You put him on the cross and crucified him. Now there are so many lessons we can glean from this text, isn't there? We've got a model of how the New Testament interprets the Old. Isn't that good? Oh, the Word is so powerful, isn't it? When we study in its context, we have in the passage the sovereignty of God and also human responsibility. Responsibility of man. God delivered him up. According to his plan. But we are morally culpable. Everybody in this building. He died for our sins. We have in this text. The essential components. Of apostolic preaching. Life. Remember that last week. Attested by the father. Great wonderful miracles. Nicodemus said. No one can do the miracles you do. Unless you've come from God. 
We have his life. We have his death, crucifixion. We have the burial. We have the resurrection. We have the ascension. We have his enthronement. Central to preaching. If this church ever stops preaching that, then we need to shut the doors and go home. Right? That's the gospel. It's foundational. We have in this text an explanation of how the Holy Spirit of God was poured out from the Father through the Son and to His church. When we fail to be what we ought to be since Jesus resurrected and ascended to heaven, it's been because we've lived on the wrong side of Pentecost. We act like Jesus didn't come out of the grave and we act like He didn't leave us a spirit. But He did. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the world. So, You've got the Father giving the Spirit to the Son and the Son giving it to the church. We've got in this passage the clear testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus said, I am the... That means there's no way of going without Him. I am the... That means there's no way of knowing without Him. I am the... That means there's no way of living without Him, folks. That's going to progressively be the most difficult doctrine that we have to stand on as a church. All your media guys, they're okay with religiosity. As long as there's a plural road that leads to heaven. That you've got many ways to get there. But let me tell you right here, on the authority of the Word of God, there is no chance of heaven apart from Jesus. There's only one way to the Father, and it's through the Son. When he gets to chapter 4, verse 12, he's going to say, There's no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Only one name. And in this text, we learn that from this. Folks, the reason there's only one way is because he's the enthroned ruler in heaven. And you can't be accepted before the Father unless you have the righteousness of Jesus. And you can't have his righteousness unless you identify with your own sinfulness and turn to him and trust what he did on Calvary to forgive you of your sins. That's the gospel. Amen? Therefore, Jesus Christ rules and reigns. And he rules and reigns today. So he's glorified. He, he is enthroned. He's also the mediator between God and man. He alone is the God-man. It gives him a unique position, doesn't it? And you crucified him. And again, we'd be absolutely foolish to not think about our own sin. The fact that he died in our place. Paid the debt that we could never pay. So, Peter's got a group of Jews listening that day. But this message transcends time and space. We too are responsible for the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. So in this awesome proclamation that God has made him both Lord and Christ, we need to hear the remaining part echoing in our souls. You crucified him. But here's the glory of it. God raised him up. Now in conclusion to the sermon, I want you to listen to this. There's only one appropriate response. And it's the response you see in verse 37. We're going to unpack it more next week. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, folks, he's preaching to some very recalcitrant recalcitrant people. I mean, folks, you can't get any more recalcitrant than the fact that you put Jesus on the cross. He's preaching to people who crucified Jesus. Don't you think they were pretty stiff-necked? They were guilty and didn't even know it. Look, your mind goes back to some of the last words of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They had become so stiff and hard that they crucified the Son of God. Oh, listen to the power of the Word. 
But the Word preached to them that day. Cut into the stone of their heart. It was the preached Word that did it. Do you remember when the disciples were walking on the Emmaus Road and they couldn't recognize that it was Jesus? But as He began to preach to them the Word of God, He began to take the scales off and the callousness from their hearts and they began to see Him for who He is. That's the power of the Word. Do you all see it in the text? Not just me saying it. Do you see that in the passage of Scripture? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It was the hearing of the Word that changed the life. Has that ever happened to you? This is serious, isn't it? Has the Word of God ever come to you in such a way that when you heard it, you cried out, and whether your knees were on the ground or not, your heart was on the ground, and you said, what must I do? Now listen, if you've never done that, then you've never met the Redeemer. If you've never done that, then you've really never repented of your sins. If you don't get to the place where you're prostrate before the Lord of glory, and you are bowing down and submitting in your life to Him, and you're saying, God, Your Word convicted me. I know I can't be saved without Your forgiveness. I've got to repent. I've got to repent and turn to You.